Well, good morning. We are continuing our Advent series. We've hit pause on our teaching through the book of Acts to stop and look at Advent, this time where we embrace a posture of waiting to celebrate uh, the arrival of Christ and all that that means. And so uh, we are reflecting on the witnesses, those who were around the birth of Jesus. And Christmas is really, it's a testimonial to the reality of one greater, of heaven's invasion of earth. I don't know if you grew up with Advent uh, or an Advent tradition. I seem to remember a calendar and some candy associated with it, but uh, it was not a habit in my home to celebrate Advent. And so we are, as a church, uh, pausing to embrace this season and anticipate the arrival of the king, the king who comes clothed in humility and brings a kingdom that is a direct contrast to the kingdoms of this world. And so far, we've seen two witnesses. First, the witness of Joseph and the scandal of grace as he embraces the reputation that he does not earn uh, and anticipation of the kind of uh, story Jesus will tell, and then Herod and his witness to the threat of grace. So today, I want us to examine the witness of the shepherds, the shepherds at the nativity, and their witness to the inclusivity of grace. So let's let's look at the story. Um, it is the Christmas story. Maybe you are like my family now, and you read Luke's version of the Christmas story every year. We do it before we open presents. Hopefully it won't damage my kids' love for the Bible to have to read a story before they get to open something. But uh, in the end, uh, that's our habit. So it may be familiar to you as well. And it's also, um, it's familiar. If you've been at the church or at church at all at Christmas time, this is a familiar story. And so uh, what I want to say to you this morning is that perhaps some elements of the story are not so familiar that uh, there are pieces we miss because of our familiarity with the story. And so the first thing that we observe from the story is that the birth of Jesus, the most significant event in human history, uh, the event of God coming in the flesh, the incarnation, uh, happens in humility, that, that Jesus is born in a cave and placed in a feeding trough for animals. And it is a remarkable scene. But what's remarkable to me about this is that Luke, the author, the, the narrator of this whole event, immediately shifts the scene, moves the camera off the humble king born in a feeding trough and takes us out to a field with shepherds. Look at verse 8 with me where it says, in, in that same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. So the event of Jesus' birth is accompanied by two extremes in creation. On one hand, you have angels, the, the least normal, most mysterious, exalted beings in creation. And then you have shepherds, the most normal, uh, lowly, humble people on the planet. And there's this extreme between heaven and earth here. And what we see is the inclusivity of God's grace reaches across the greatest gaps imaginable. Cause us to think about Colossians 1.19, where Paul says, For in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. 
you see the shepherds represent a, a significant social gap. You have heaven and earth meeting together in this scene. And shepherds, just on earth alone, are, during this time in Jewish society, looked down on significantly. The rabbinical literature of the time suggests that the shepherding occupation should be on the list of robbers and cheats, so much so that they were not permitted as witnesses in court. In fact, it was uh, forbidden to buy wool directly from a shepherd because it was suspect as being uh, stolen. It's like the watch salesman on a New York street corner. Like there's a lack of credibility when he offers you a Rolex. Uh, and so this was this was the way shepherds were viewed. Uh, in contrast, of course, to the high view that God places on the shepherding occupation within Scripture, that God calls himself a shepherd, that he himself will shepherd Israel. Um, but within the ancient Jewish uh, culture of the day, um, shepherds were viewed as suspect. So um, the, the, this is the point, though. Why, why does Luke include the shepherds as witnesses? What makes them uh, a, an important character to use as a witness? I, I would suggest to you it's precisely the point of the entire story of Luke that he's telling, that the least and the last and the lost are not only included now in God's kingdom through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they are also now joined in as partners and credible witnesses to one greater. And so now we turn this week to the shepherds, because they are the last people we should expect to find as being cited in a literary work whose sole aim is to persuade us of the certainty of what has been fulfilled among us. It's like so punk rock of Luke to turn his attention to them, uh, to the shepherds as witnesses at this point. By including their witness, he's showing us how far God goes to include those furthest from acceptability in his grace. God's grace is an exclusive, er, sorry, an inclusive grace. So what do we see in their witness? There's three things this morning. The first is this, that uh, we see the response of fear reveals uh, an experience of exclusion, or it reveals our ultimate exclusion, if you will. There's a fundamental part of being human that desires to belong. It's hardwired into our DNA, into our brains, into every part of us. We need to belong socially. We need to be loved. It's not even really a matter of faith. This is just the notion that we are a social animal born for love is widely recognized by doctors and sociologists and psychologists. Humans are meant to belong. It's an undeniable reality of our nature. And for all of human history, we've sought ways to form meaningful bonds. And in fact, when people fail to form bonds, it it causes issues for life. But the reality is this, that belonging is not easy, nor is it simple. There is all this stuff that sneaks up in our consciences, not now, even as you're listening, you're thinking to yourself reasons why you may not belong. There are uh, no doubt most of us can call to mind reasons people wouldn't want us if they really knew us, or, or past experiences that we can draw up that have violated a bond or damaged our capacity to trust again. And the truth is, none of us have made it to adulthood unscathed by some form of exclusion, some form of social non-belonging, some form of rejection, some experience of exclusion from belonging. And our text this morning finds a group of shepherds 
totally afraid. These guys are absolutely terrified. And so what you have is God, the ultimate other, has invaded their space. He's intruded upon their quiet evening with sheep, and the result is fear. The glory of the Lord, the text tells us, shines around them. The glory, if you go back to the Old Testament story, the glory is the brightness and the overwhelming weightiness of God's presence and his perfection and his holiness. And so when you think about glory, it's the weight of who God is in his perfection come crashing down on you in a field while you think your biggest problem is keeping wolves away from sheep, right? And so now your biggest problem is the holiness of God, right? Like this, so you're shaking in your sandals at this point if you were one of these shepherds. And so uh, this is a story, however, that goes way further back. Luke is echoing a much older story in the scriptures back to the beginning, the story that is actually repeated throughout the Bible. Uh, people encounter God and they are afraid. If you go back to Genesis 1, the, the beginning of the Bible story, it tells us about God making a good creation. He makes it and he says it's very good. And the whole imagery of Eden and the, the garden is this cosmic temple. This is the place when God rests, he's saying, I'm ready to move in and take up residence in my dwelling place with humans who bear my image and are my priests to all creation. And, and they're made to represent him, human, humanity, to represent and partner with him. And so this garden temple is this space where humanity and God are at peace and dwelling together. It's an idyllic picture of belonging. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, it describes uh, the, the situation, the social situation of the garden was naked and unashamed. This is Adam and Eve. They have nothing to hide. There's nothing to be ashamed about. They are completely themselves without worrying about rejection. That is, until humans listen to the lie that you can be like God, which is a lie because they're already like God. They're made in his image. And you could be like God deciding good and evil for yourself, independent of him. And so they listen to this lie and it's appealing because they want to call the shots for themselves without taking God at his word on the definition of good and evil. The text in Genesis 3 goes on to describe the situation after they eat the fruit, which is symbolic of a transgression across a boundary that God had made for them to say, if you eat of this, it'll kill you. If you decide for independence, it'll kill you. And they, they go for it. And it says that the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Now they're, they're aware of themselves. They are aware that there may be something to hide. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made for themselves loincloths. They immediately cover up. They sense a non-belonging now. I don't belong here as I was before. And so they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day as if this was a normal routine to have a nice walk and a nice chat through the garden with the Creator God. But now the situation's changed uh, and so the, the man and his wife hid themselves, the text says, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Right? The tree is a terrible hiding spot from the creator God. Right? Uh, he's going to find you. So the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Not, again, not a question for God's benefit, a question for Adam's benefit. God knows where he is. He's now asking a relational question. Where are you in relation to me? 
You've moved, right? You're hiding. That's what he's trying to evoke confession. And so he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And so the, the invasion of God's glory in a field with shepherds results in fear because the situation hasn't changed since the garden. It hasn't changed at all for humanity since the garden. Adam names the reason for his hiding. I was afraid because I was naked. We should read, I was vulnerable. I was ashamed of what I am and what I've done, and so I hid. And so the the reason we have a lack of belonging has deep historical and spiritual roots. Humanity has been covering and hiding and blaming almost since the beginning because we're afraid of the ugliness of sin being exposed in front of the beauty of God and certainly the imperfect scrutiny of others. And because we once decided that we should choose good and evil for ourselves, and now we live in a situation where what if your definition of good isn't my definition of good, and so we hide from each other and we don't belong the way we are meant to belong. And every time in the biblical story that God meets the people, people are afraid Right? His glory is there, there's fire, there's smoke, the earth shakes, and everybody's terrified. But what is God constantly saying to his people? What does he say to Joshua as he's about to leave, enter the land? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Moses. Don't be afraid, Joshua. Don't be afraid, prophets. Don't be afraid, Jeremiah. Right? Why? Because my presence is with you. Now, how do you get this? Right? It's the presence of God that evokes fear, and yet at the same time, God's saying it's my presence that gives you reason not to fear. So this is, this is the story we're in, in Luke. And so here's what Luke, the Luke passage is teaching us about our nature if we're willing to hear it. We do experience a fundamental exclusion, that the shepherds experience exclusion or non-belonging. And it's not because they're shepherds and low on the social totem pole. It's because our exclusion has existed spiritually as a result of sin ever since the garden, That the human experience is an experience outside the garden. It's an experience of exile, of things not the way they're meant to be. And so there's this break in communion between humanity and God and with one another. And the cracks that that are meant to be bonds are are cracks now, right? That um, what has happened is... Uh, there's a a crack in the social fabric of our nature because we are not reconciled to God. And so it's it's entirely natural for the glory of God shining brightly in your life to throw you into a panic because it's his glory and his weightiness that crashes in on you and it shows up all the cracks in your life and it shows up all the rebellious tendencies and the hidden thoughts and the idolatrous intentions and all of these things for what they are, which is darkness. And the exposure of darkness by light only works to reveal our alienation, right, and our need for a remedy. And so fear is the emotional response to that kind of existential exclusion. And it plays out in all kinds of very normal ways for us, right? Um, Oh, no, if they get power, what does it say about my position? This is a fear response because I don't feel I belong and I'm not secure. Or if they get the promotion, what does that say about my performance? That's a fear response, isn't it, about my not belonging. If I lose my job, what, if they knew my past, and you could go on all the way through. And so fear pre- presupposes our basic existential exile, our basic exclusion from our truest belonging to God. Fear is like um, what happens when the nerve of not belonging gets pushed on. 
And so the angel and the glory show up, and it paralyzes the shepherds. They're nobodies, and they're shaking, and the presence of God is there, and bringing light. But the response to this is so often to either just work really hard to make ourselves acceptable so that we can feel like we've proven our belonging, or to just simply give up entirely and adjust our expectations to not being acceptable and living in a kind of shadow of not really ever being known or experiencing belonging. But here's where the Luke story is remarkable. So that's enough kind of reality check for us. But let's now look at the reality of what the gospel says to this situation. The story of Luke moves on. Verse 10 says, the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So what's the result of God and his glory and his perfection come crashing into your sphere? What's, What's the result of heaven invading earth? Fear not. Fear not. The message addresses our exclusion. It meets us in our authentic feelings of fear where we feel we don't belong and it confronts us with a new reality of inclusion. And the reality is this, and this is the second point I want to make this morning, that what we behold determines our experience of inclusion. The shepherds show us the inclusivity of grace here because they're shepherds. On one hand, they don't matter. They have no social capital, and yet they're the chosen witnesses, and so they're included as these first witnesses to Christ, and that should utterly amaze us at the inclusivity of God's grace, but also the message to them, right? They're afraid, rightly, in God's presence, but now they've been offered inclusion that's remarkable. And, and so based on the message, now they're told to take a different posture, which is don't be afraid. Here's how it works. The angel says, here's why you should not fear. He says, behold, behold, look, look at this reality that has now come into your life. It casts fear aside. So much so that when you truly grasp what the angels are speaking, you'll understand that fear no longer is an appropriate response to God's glory and his presence. And so what is the reality that the shepherds are to behold and look at and perceive? Good news, gospel of great joy for all the people. And the content of that good news is a Savior has been born. Christ, the Messiah, the King, has been born. And so what gives reason for the fear of our exclusion uh, from God's presence to utterly be cast aside? It's that there's an inclusion that's come through the Savior, the Christ, an inclusion that's come when we behold the gift of heaven. It's an inclusion that we truly belong now in God's presence in front of a holy God. And so we have this experience whenever you go on a road trip. Uh, Just bear with me. Whenever you go on a road trip with your friends or your family, you, you have this experience that your sense of belonging comes through what you behold. Inevitably, somebody sees something fascinating, really interesting on the side of the road, right? That whether it's roadkill or an accident, or which can both happen simultaneously, uh, or maybe just some really pretty building or an odd offensive billboard or who knows, right? You see something outside the car. Somebody calls it out. And so what happens is that everyone who sees it and they behold it now is in on something. Maybe we're in on a common joke together or we're in on some awe or beauty. Look at that mountain range or something like that. Uh, Or look at that weird car, right? 
And so you have this shared experience and you're in on it and you have this sense of we were, we we're captivated by something outside of the car. But the person who never looks, who was too busy on their phone or ha- was sound asleep or had their headphones on and never heard you, whatever, that person doesn't experience the same belonging. They didn't behold the same thing, right? Are you with me? This is, this is a terribly weak metaphor for the gospel. But at the same time, this is the phenomenon that we experience, right? And so um, it's the same principle. What we behold ultimately determines how we experience inclusion. There's a, a provision of inclusion made for the whole universe, but the, those who behold it will experience the benefits of that inclusion. So it's one thing, by the way, to simply say that everyone should just be included. That's our culture, right? Like everyone should be included. And what we mean by that is we should name everything equally good. Right? Like, let's just redefine that for a second. And so it's one thing to say, as our culture does in this moment, you should accept me as I am. Yes, gospel says yes, but you should also affirm everything about me. Gospel says no, right? right? Um, in other words, when you live like that, every individual gets to dictate the costs of belonging for everyone else. Right? You have to bear the cost of me doing whatever I want. That's actually what we're saying. Uh, but the reality of the gospel is this. It's good news of great joy for all the people, right? It, it's, now, it's not that the, the good news is um, everyone is accepted so that they can stay exactly the same. That's not what the gospel's saying. Uh, the gospel is saying everyone is accepted so that they can become who they were truly meant to be as created persons in the image of God. The gospel says you're loved by God exactly as you are, but you're loved by God so much that he won't leave you as you are. That would be captivity. And so our inclusion is found in the one we behold, the one who includes us now in his life. Not so that you can go on living your life the way you want, but so you can go on living his life by the power of the Spirit. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. How much better, right? Especially for those around you. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There you have it. He loves you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. And so the inclusion in that life is available to all who behold it. Grace is radically inclusive. I'm going to run the risk of being a little quote heavy here. So just hang with me. Don't get sidetracked by... Some of the big words, it's worth the payoff. One of my favorite um, books from, I don't know, about 10 years ago, is this Croatian theologian, a guy named Miroslav Volf. And he says this in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. Great title. Um, he says this. He says, when, when the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, turns out towards the world, the Son and the Spirit, now he quotes an early church father, a guy named Irenaeus, become in Irenaeus's beautiful image the two arms of God by which humanity was made and taken into God's embrace. Now, you could camp out on that first sentence for about a month. That same love that sustains non-self-enclosed identities in the Trinity. Okay, here's what he means. He means the same love that sustains Father, Son, and Holy Spirit not being closed in, but they're open to one another. They mutually indwell each other. There's this open, give-and-take relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. A self-enclosed person is, is just all about me, right? That's not the Trinity. So that same love that sustains that kind of non-self-enclosed identity in the Trinity 
seeks to make space in God for humanity. And then he goes on and he says this, that when humanity, there we go, is however, our humanity is however, not just the other of God, but the beloved other. God loves humanity. But that beloved other has become an enemy. So when God sets out to embrace the enemy, the result is the cross, he says. On the cross, that dancing circle of self-giving and mutually indwelling persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, opens up for the enemy, humanity. In the agony of the passion, the movement stops for a brief moment and a fissure appears so that sinful humanity can join in. And he's quoting John 17. goes on and he says this, We, the others, we, the enemies, are embraced by the divine persons who love us with the same love with which they love each other and therefore make space for us within their own eternal embrace. As Miroslav Volf trying to put words to what happens when God says, you belong with me. You belong in relationship with me uh, between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, let me find my spot again. Here we go. All right. These, uh, these things are built tough. It's a good thing I already had a crack on the screen. So, all right, here we go. The uh, inclusion in that life between Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect belonging for all eternity, is radically available to all who would behold the grace of God. Um, and so this inclusion exists in the Trinity, and it's ours through the Savior, for all who perceive, who all, all who behold. So do you see him today, Jesus Christ, the one who has taken our exclusion from the Garden of Eden in the Garden of Gethsemane? The one who, by taking our sin, has become the one judged the one who gave his position of utter belonging to experience cosmic exclusion and alienation so that we can have his perfect place of belonging. See, Jesus Christ today, behold him the way he is and what he's done so that we can be reconciled and brought into that embrace. This is remarkable news, friends. And this is why the angel says it's good news of great joy. The final thing here, fear reveals our exclusion, and what we behold determines our experience of inclusion. And lastly, I just want to say it's for all the people. It's for anyone. One of the great realities that Luke is pointing out is that it's for anyone who would join in, anyone who would behold the grace of God and find it attractive and say, that grace is for me. I will not stand on my work, but I'll stand on what Christ has done for me. And the angel says it's good news of great joy for all the people. No one is excluded from grace being the means of our belonging. It's not grace for some and good works for others. It's grace for all. And so one of our temptations, I believe, is as a church to abstract the goodness and the grace of God and depersonalize it and say, yeah, it's some principle out in the universe, but it's not for me. I still have to work and earn and prove that I belong. What I want to say to you today is, Listen to the witnesses at Christmas. Silence the earning and striving and say, today I'm going to listen to the witness who say it's by grace that I'm included. Invite you to consider that you're loved and his favor is on you. How do you appropriate that kind of grace? How do you move towards it and accept it? Verse 15 says that when the angels went away from 
them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. It's simple trust. It's taking God at his word and trusting it and saying, I'm going to check this out. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to move forward in obedience to what's been revealed. I'm going to take a step forward in faith and trust. And so this is inclusion for you. Will you behold Jesus today, your inclusion into God's perfect love? But guess what? There's also people in each of our lives that we also need to remember that this is an abstract. It's real for the people who are most difficult to include, right? Sometimes we've been those people. Other times you know those people. And this is probably the place that I most have to uh, just yield and saying God's grace is big enough to accept those who I feel I would like to, I'd like for them to agree about who's right, right, before I accept. But God's grace says, guess what? You move towards them in acceptance because that's the way I've moved towards you. And so we bear witness to God's inclusive grace to others who feel difficult for us because God's moved that way in our life. And so when you see that you've been brought in, that you belong perfectly with him, their belonging will not threaten you. Their belonging will not be a competition with you. There's no fear that your belonging can be displaced and threatened when you understand what God has done to make space for you in his life. And so it means that we are called to be a hospitable community, to make space for anyone. And we want everyone to behold good news of great joy for all the people, and so we will live hospitably. So the best practice for us is to weekly gather around the tables that call us to God's hospitality, that invite us to be freeloaders at his table, to experience his divine hospitality weekly, and to take the elements and remember that Christ has paid the price of hospitality at the table, to say, I've made space for you, and it looks like my body and my blood, my body given for you, my blood shed for you. And so we can move towards the table to celebrate God's hospitality towards us. And so I'll invite the band up to lead us the last couple of songs, and I want to invite you to just make this a time of response and worship to say, thank you, God, for your hospitality. I come to you without earning. I come to you just simply on the inclusion of your grace to say, uh, we are grateful as a people for what you've done to make space for us. God, would you move through us by your spirit to make space for others to belong in that same grace? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, what we find at your table we find your hospitality, your divine initiative, and your goodness, and we find it in abundance, and we find that there is room for all at your table. God, we behold today Christ and are moved by him, and we want to sing with the angels, Lord, uh, glory to God in the highest and peace among uh, all on earth who find favor your grace um, in your eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.